0: but whoever drinks of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right, thank you, Ashley. Good morning, Redemption. How y'all doing? Okay, uh, by show of hands, how many of you had Lucky Charms for breakfast this morning? <laughs> Anybody? There's, there's one, okay. I'm really sorry. I, I don't mean to offend you, but I just think that marshmallows in breakfast cereal is wrong. <laughs> it's just wrong, okay? Have it for dessert after dinner. I think that would be more appropriate. Anyway, happy, happy St. Patrick's Day today. Glad to see some green out there. Let's celebrate the Irish, okay? All right, so we are continuing in our series, Love Walked Among Us, and what we're looking at is this different, radical, disorienting, and comprehensive way that Jesus loved in every context that he was in, and he would express his love in different ways in every context that he was in, because every context demands a different expression of love. It just depends on what's going on. And we've seen how flexible, I guess you could say, he is. He, he knows how to read a situation and understand what kind of love uh, needs to be applied in that. And that's really important. And this passage today, which, by the way, we're going to actually go to verse 30. But this passage today is really one of the most disorienting uh, expressions of love that Jesus ever shows in the Gospels. If you really understand the culture that they're in, which I'm going to try to get at uh, today you begin to understand that th- he's really turning things completely upside down. It- it's-, it's really crazy. But because many of us are in, the- in this room are actually Christ's followers, it's important for us to be studying uh, this idea of love walked among us and how he loves in all these different contexts so that you and I can also uh, take it- an understanding of his love, this gospel-centered love, and begin to apply it in our context, even when it's disorienting, even when it's uncomfortable for us because it was uncomfortable for for Jesus as well. Uh, And even when uh, we don't feel like it, we're we're called to this radical kind of love. And if you are brand new to all of this, we are thrilled that we get to introduce you to Jesus through this passage today. This is a great passage to be introduced uh, to Jesus in. So we're going to we're going to do th- something a little bit different today. We're going to work our way through the text, but that's all we're going to do. We're just going to work our way through the 30 verses, um, and you're going to have application throughout, and then, and then we'll, we'll be done. So you're going to hear the gospel. You're going to hear application. It's all going to be mixed in. So we're going to go back and read the first six verses and start there. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not, Baptized, but only as disciples. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. That's the way the gospel writer uh, captures that. So he came to a town of uh, of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Once again, I want us to be aware of all of the Old Testament allusions that are in the background of this. That's part of the context part of the story. You have Jacob, Jacob's well, Jacob becomes Israel. Uh, They end up in Egypt for 400 years, and then that's when the exodus happens, is after the 400 years in Egypt. So Jacob is an important, quote, patriarch in in their tradition. But also we're going to see that Moses is also in the background of this. So Lots of Old Testament allusions here, but also lots of, for them, contemporary context and then obviously context for us. Uh, this, this first six verses gets us our bearings for the story. So a couple things I want to talk about here. First of all, uh, we need to remember that this is very early in Jesus' public ministry. So his disciples were still getting to know him. They didn't, they didn't quite understand Jesus. They didn't get him, uh, just like nobody else got him. And so they're following him as a rabbi, they're part of his rabbinical yoke, but the things that he's doing are really kind of freaking them out, and this is no uh, exception. They're all often confused by what Jesus teaches and what Jesus does. They've never been exposed to anything like this before. Second of all, understand the context now. John chapter 3, the chapter right before this, and it's even mentioned in there, um, there are two pretty big events that happen in John chapter 3. There's, first of all, there's this guy Nicodemus who's a professional religious person um, who would normally be, stand against what Jesus, who Jesus is and what he's doing. Nicodemus wants to learn more from Jesus. And so we know he goes to him at night under the cover of darkness so that maybe nobody will see that he's going to see uh, Jesus. And he goes to Jesus. And and he starts asking him questions. And of course, Jesus answers the question that he should have asked in the first place. He tells Nicodemus, uh, you must be born again. And Nicodemus, thoroughly confused, he asks the question. He says, how is it that I can enter into my mother's womb a second time? That makes no sense to him. And, and, And Jesus says, well, you need to be born of water, but also of spirit. And then he gives us that famous line, John 3.16, where he says, uh, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever uh, would believe in him would never perish. And then after that, Jesus teaches a little bit more, and then here comes John the Baptist again, back into the picture. And John the Baptist sees Jesus now. John was the one who was announcing that he was coming. Now he sees Jesus actually coming, and he says, behold... The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And that is a complete, maybe this is too strong of a word, but it would be an eradication of the Old Testament system of sacrifice, sacrificing lambs and goats and animals for our sin. He's saying, this is the last sacrifice. This is the lamb that will take away the sins of the world. Again, disorienting teaching for their context. But John the Baptist gets it. He's fully on board. And by the way, we learn later on that he loses his life for that. Okay, he's he's like the he's he's one of the first martyrs in in this whole idea of believing in uh, Jesus. So that's what happens before. These are ministry successes. And so Jesus has a couple of ministry successes, but, but these ministry successes are disorienting and they're also a disruption to the religious status quo. So they're disorienting, we're having trouble understanding them, but they also disrupt the religious status quo, which is very troubling to the professional religious people. And Jesus understands that, he embraces the fact that he's going to be a disruption, he, he embraces the fact that he's going to cause problems, but he also does not want to become a distraction to what God is doing and to his mission and purpose. And so this is why he feels he has to leave Judea at this time and go somewhere else. And and so he had these great great successes, but now they're going to leave Judea and head north to Galilee. But John tells us he had to go through Samaria. And this is where all the tension in this passage comes. Some of you know the Jews and the Samaritans were like oil and water. They were uh, far left Democrats and far right Republicans. I have no idea which one was which, but that's kind of, you get the idea. They were, here you go, it was, it was the U of A and ASU. They, some of you now will get that, okay. This, they, they, they did not mix well at, at all. And there were two ways to be able to get to uh, Galilee from Judea, I'm really excited. Some of you know I'm reaching for my laser pointer. <laughs> Let's go to the map. (laughs) All right, Hard to see, very hard to see. We looked, uh, Stephanie and I have searched and searched and searched. Difficult map. This is Judea down here. This is where they are. There's Jerusalem right there. This is the area of the old southern kingdom. So if you remember in 922 BC, Solomon's son split the kingdom into the northern kingdom Israel, the southern kingdom Judah, Uh, This is the area of the old uh, southern kingdom, which was sacked by the Babylonians in 605, 597, and 586 BC. Uh, Samaria is the area of the old northern kingdom, formerly called Israel, which was sacked in in, uh, 722 by the Assyrians. Uh, So both of these were conquered lands at one time. However, Judea is where the exiles came back from Babylon uh, in in the uh, 500s and 400s and resettled Jerusalem. So here's Samaria, and Jesus is trying to get to Galilee. This is a common thing for Jews to go from Judea to Galilee because Galilee has a very high concentration of Jewish population. There were also non-Jews, Gentiles who lived up there. High concentration, though, of Jews up here. This is all Jewish here. This is all Samaritans here, non-Jews, but with some Jewish background. And then this, again, is, is mostly Jewish with some, uh, some Gentiles that are living up there. So there are two ways to get from Judea to Galilee. One way is to walk over this way, cross the Jordan River, walk up here, and then cross the Jordan River here again, up way up here in the north, just south of the Sea of Galilee and then get into Galilee without ever having to touch Samaria in any way. But that would, that would double the time it took to get up to Galilee. So it wasn't convenient, but many Jews did that. Uh, the, the other way to get there is to go straight through Samaria. It took less time, but that's the way that most Jews did not want to go. And there's all kinds of, of reasons uh, to do that. Um, many took the long way because they did did not want to come in contact with any Samaritans, but Jesus had an appointment with this woman at the well, so he knew he had to go through there. So let me give you a little bit more about the Jews and the Samaritans. Uh, The the geography, like I said, of of Samaria was the old northern kingdom. Judea is the southern kingdom. Galilee is north of there. The Samaritans were not just frowned upon by the Jews, but were treated as a scourge. And the reason is because when the Assyrians attacked them, uh, they didn't necessarily displace the Jews that lived there, but rather they brought other conquered peoples into um, uh, this area, this northern kingdom, and started intermarrying with the, with the Jews that were there, which then in, in some religious orthodox uh, context made them look impure, or they were thought of as, as being impure. So, one reason uh, the Jews would not take the route through Samaria is that they believed that if you came in contact with anything that was Samaritan, you would be, quote, unclean for a week, which meant you couldn't go into a synagogue or a temple for a whole week. And because, there's another level of this, because of the deep underlying Jewish prejudices, a Samaritan woman was even worse. She was considered eternally unclean, and so there was no chance of redemption whatsoever for her. And so you couldn't come in contact at all with a Samaritan woman, lest you be cast away from the temple and, the, and, and worship for, uh, for life. There were also constant wars between the two, Sam- uh, Samaria and uh, Judea, from about 200 BC all the way up until the late first century AD. In fact, The Jews had even destroyed the Samaritans' temple of worship that stood on Mount Gerizim, which was just a few miles from their capital in Samaria City. Uh, In 175 BC, they went in and destroyed that. And so at its foundation, this was the way many of the arguments went between Jews and Samaritans. The Jews would say, we're better than you, you're impure, you're losers. And the Samaritans would say, you have offended us, therefore we have a right to sin against you. So essentially, they're fourth graders. That's literally, there's these arguments or Congress, but literally, this is this is yeah. So this is kind of what's going on. I mean, there's just there's no there's no ground on which they could they could see each other as equals. So Jesus' upcoming encounter, considering all of that, is with a Samaritan, and it's with a woman Samaritan, and a very sinful Samaritan woman at that. We also need to know that the Samaritans had their religious orthodoxy as well. They believed that they were better than the Jews, of course. I mean, what wildcat doesn't believe that they are better than a sun devil, for crying out loud? And their orthodoxy was rooted in the Hebrew scriptures, but it was a lot narrower. They believed that only the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, were God's books. So Exodus uh, through Deuteronomy. Uh, And they believed that their ancestral and spiritual father father was Jacob, not Abraham, not Moses. So they really, they were keyed in on Jacob. Um, Thus the significance of the well-being, of the well, this this well being the one that Jacob had built some 1,800 years earlier. So everything is centered around this because Jacob's such a big deal. And by the way, everything I've read says that that well is still there today. You can go and visit Jacob's well. The 6th hour is also a significant detail. Water was collected in community in the early morning or the late evening hours when it was cool and so you would go to the to the well to collect the water when it was the weather was was nice and everybody else would be there and it would be a time of community so here it's like a 1st century coffee house without the coffee but they're all they're all gathering there. The 6th hour is noon. It's the hottest part of the day. No one collected water during that time unless you were a complete outcast. Nobody wanted to see you. So she's there alone. She is, this woman is despised by even her own people. We need to understand that. So all of this is the background of the story that's about to unfold. And believe me, we only scratched the surface, but we've got enough to be able to move forward and understand. So, 7 through 15. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. I think that's an interesting detail, which I'll get to. Uh, The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask uh, ask for for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria, not only a Jew, but a a male Jew, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans? Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. And the woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw the water with, but the well is, and the well is deep. Where do, you get that, uh, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. And Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water I will give, him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again to draw water. She would love to avoid having to go and draw water for a multitude of reasons. And there's a lot here, but we'll get at it. So understand this woman right out of the gate, she's disoriented, she's confused, completely taken aback. Uh, And she's used to whatever the opposite of welcome is. So whatever we understand as being welcoming, she's used to the opposite of that. No one ever welcomed her anywhere. Even if she was physically present, she did not feel welcomed. Have you ever been physically present somewhere, but you still didn't feel welcomed? Nobody would orient themselves toward you. Nobody would make eye contact with you. Nobody would talk to you okay, so she, she's, she's in that category, even if she's physically present with others, the, there is no welcome, the only time it appeared that she might seem welcomed, is if she could do something for a man, and as we'll see, that's where she was finding her value, uh, we'll see that later, that's, that's really her story, is she had to find welcome, a, a welcoming uh, um, ethos somewhere, and so that's where she found it, Yet the way Jesus speaks to her is a way that she's not used to because she's never welcomed anywhere. Jesus speaks to her with dignity and gives her dignity. He's speaking to her with a, le- with a measure of honor and respect that I know she's not used to. Uh, he's speaking to her as if she's worthy of a true welcome. As if she's worthy of somebody turning fully toward her, making eye contact and embracing who she is as a creation of God, as as somebody who bears the image of God, as somebody who has dignity and worth and value. And that is really powerful stuff. The simple act of giving our full, non-phone-occupied attention to a person is incredible. And by the way, that's just not true scripturally, it's true in social science. This idea of of being able to make eye contact with people, that is the basis for intimacy. And and it's the basis for being able to make connections with people and make them feel valued. not to stare them down, appropriate eye contact, I hope you understand, okay, but, but be willing to make eye, that, that, is, that is a sign of intimacy, of value, and, and worth, okay? Now remember, the Jews believed the Samaritan that Samaritan women were eternally unclean, and so to drink water from the same drawing cup would be disastrous for Jesus under his religious uh, paradigm. In fact, there's a phrase in there, the Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. In the ancient Hebrew, if you were to translate that into ancient Hebrew, which is where it comes from, it literally means we do not share or touch the same things as Samaritans. And I mention this, yet at the same time, what are the disciples doing? They're in town buying food from some Samaritan vendor, okay? So my cynical side comes out now. Apparently, if you're hungry, none of the devout religious restrictions apply, okay? I mean, some things just take precedence, apparently. So anyway, the woman is so disoriented by Jesus' approach that she talks to Jesus like he's the one who's got issues, okay? And, and Jesus uses her, uh, her confusion to deepen the conversation and get at right, right at what is her most essential need. In verse 10, Jesus raises the stakes, He tells the woman that if she really knew what was happening to her at that moment, she would ask for living water, not just well water. And this this idea of living water has two meanings, there's two layers here. On the surface, the first meaning is, is living water in, in their context was considered water that flowed, water that was moving. So water in a stream or a river. Most well water is not moving, it's stagnant. And the best kind of water to use is water that's moving, not water that's stagnant. So even though they had this well water, they, they would like water that's being moved. Okay? So that's considered living water. But on a much deeper level, the Torah, her Bible was thought of metaphorically as living water. So Jesus is saying, I'm the living water. I am the word of God. I am God. So if you remember the very beginning of John's gospel, the very first verse is in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. Jesus is affirming that right here to this woman. And, And if she we were able to stop and think about it just a minute, she'd get it, but she's, she's still in the midst of this disorientation. And so she responds by qu- questioning Jesus' ability to get any water in the first place from anywhere. He has nothing to draw the water with, but, uh, but she also does poke at him theologically by telling him, I'm a descendant of Jacob, and you're certainly not Jacob. So she's also kind of poking at him theologically. So Jesus, here you go, listen carefully, Jesus ignores the dig. He, he ignores the poke in order to focus on her greatest need. That is one thing that love does, that Jesus shows us about love. Love ignores frivolous, even hurtful distractions in order to give what is truly needed. It's one of the hardest things that you and I will ever do. Because very often we are in context where we are trying to love somebody who is resisting the love and resists it through insults, or criticism, or trying to hurt us. This is the most difficult kind of love to give, and I just know that from experience. I don't even have to talk about y'all, I just know that from experience, and I'm guessing you all have had that experience as well. But real love, genuine love, gospel-centered love, uh, ignores the distractions in order to be able to give what is truly needed. But she still doesn't get it, because she has a problem that's very common today. We all have the same problem. She's looking for a gospel of practicality, not a gospel of transformation. She's looking for a practical Christianity, not a transforming Christianity. And there's a huge, huge difference. We need to understand that redemption is all about a gospel of transformation because that's the true true gospel. So many people today are just fine with Jesus as long as He does His part and makes our fleeting time here on earth easy, as easy as possible and i will tell you that is a small vapid and restrictive view of the gospel the gospel is much much bigger than that so she says great i don't have to come out here and get any water anymore i'm in tell me how to do this well here's the problem she has the same problem that we have today there are three essential needs that human beings have three large categories of needs that you and i have the first one is a physical need you and i need food we need clothing we need shelter We need Amazon, okay? We do, kind of. We didn't know how much we needed Amazon. Well, anyway. Then there are relational needs. You and I have, relate. we were created to be in relationship. It's one of the primary ways that we are image bearers of God. We need relationship. So friends, family, community, coffee houses, okay? Then we have this category that most scholars have described as a crucial need. This is the most essential need that we have, and that crucial need is for God. Father, Jesus, Holy Spirit. And God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, is the only one that can fulfill that crucial need. The only one. But you and I, what we do, and what this woman does, is we expect that the things we use to meet our physical and our relational needs is going to somehow fill that crucial need. And it doesn't work. And we get frustrated. But we keep trying, don't we? If I just close all right, I close that last deal, if I could just close this one more deal. Okay, I I I got that person's attention. Uh, kind of bored with that now. If I just move on to this person, and so we're constantly looking for these things. This woman wants convenience and water. She wants her physical items to fulfill her crucial need. And we're about to find out that she's also been trying men or relationships to meet her crucial need. That hasn't been working either. So she has not grasped the true nature of her need. And you and I also grasp with that uh, uh, struggle to grasp that that true nature of our need. So the question becomes, how many wells are you and I gonna go back to before we realize that that's not gonna fulfill us in this crucial way? It's not that wells are bad, but they're never gonna fulfill us in this crucial way. How many, how many unhealthy relationships are we gonna keep getting ourselves involved into or go back to thinking this will finally solve that need and it doesn't solve the need? And we get frustrated, and we keep looking. And standing before this woman is the one, the only one, the only one who can actually meet that crucial need. And so Jesus says, I'm going to go for it now. All right. So look at verses 16 through 18. Jesus said to her, (laughs) go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. And Jesus said to her, you're right in saying I have no husband for you have had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. So now we're getting down to the nitty-gritty here. Now she fully understands, okay, how did this, something supernatural is happening here. Jesus is way more than just some Jewish guy trying to make his way to Galilee. And again, we're reminded that Jesus does what no one else would have done in that context. He hangs in there with this woman, but he never insults her. He speaks truth to her, but he never insults her. She's had five husbands. And the one she's with now, so she's, this is the sixth man now that she's living with. And whether these other five, whether they died or whether they divorced her, it doesn't matter in their context. Because just the fact that she's had five husbands means there's something wrong with her. That's the way their culture looked at her. That's why nobody wanted to be at the well with her. She's impure, she's unclean, she's unholy. And Jesus, especially as a rabbi, the the common acceptable political practice by a rabbi in this instance would be only one question to the woman. What have you done... To become so cursed. That's the only thing he should have asked her. That's the only thing he should have engaged her on. The only thing that should have happened there according to um, religious orthodoxy of the day. But he doesn't. Instead, he, he lets her know that she's having the most significant encounter of her life and that she actually has dignity and worth in his eyes. And he does this very gently. He lets her know that he knows of her sin. I know of your sin He lets her know that, but he also lets her know, I'm not going to judge you, and I'm not walking away. We're going to work through this. We're going to work this out. Um, In fact, some people read this and think that Jesus is saying this to her as an accusation, and he's not. The fact that he words it this way is is completely countercultural and profound. And I even would go so far as to say, I think he's saying it with a little twinkle in his eye that indicates that something really special is happening And he's merely letting her know that she's talking to God. But it frightens her. It'll probably frighten you and I too. Somebody comes up and starts telling us about things about ourselves that we didn't think anybody knew about. She also clearly doesn't like him knowing her secrets. So here you go. She goes from being kind of open and sassy to being defensive and stonewalling. Look at the next five verses, 19 through uh, 24. So the woman said to him, "'Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. "'Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, "'but you say in, uh, that in Jerusalem uh, "'is the place where people ought to worship.'" And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me.'" But By the way, you notice the distraction? She tries to throw him off guard with that. She tries to change the subject there. And Jesus said to her, "'Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when "'neither on this mountain nor,' that's Mount Gerizim that he's talking about, "'nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father.'" You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming, and is here now, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So he says spirit and truth twice is how we're supposed to worship, so it might be kind of important. So the woman's answer in verses 19 and 20 is clearly a dodge. It's a distraction. It's her trying to pull away and extricate herself uh, from this conversation. And up until this point, it's funny, because she thought she was in control of the conversation. But now she realizes she's not in control. And she just wants out. But Jesus answers her with great news. Where we worship the one true God is important. It's not that it isn't important. But it's not as important as the fact that we do worship him. And how we worship Him. So we need to understand, God is not contained in a building. Uh, You didn't walk in here and suddenly you're in the presence of God. God is everywhere, okay? So we worship Him in truth and spirit, because He is truth and spirit, both. That truth side is manifest through His Word. So we seek His Word. We read and study His Word. We're in communities that study His Word because we want to know Him and we want to learn about Him by His Word and His Word is true. But we also worship in spirit because knowing and learning are good, but it's never enough. Now as as His Spirit moves in our lives, we move with that. We are guided by His Spirit. We become the mind, heart, hands, and feet of God. You and I are the mind, the heart, the hands, and the feet of God. It's a complete package, and we need both. I've said this before. There are many in the, body, the greater body of Christ, many, many people in the body of Christ, their answer to every issue, no matter what it is, their answer to every human need is, well, we need to develop a Bible study for that, and we need to get people together and study the Bible. We, just need, we need to study the Bible. And they never do anything. And you've heard me say this before. Those are what we call spiritually constipated people. They have all this knowledge, but they're not doing anything. But there's an opposite to that as well. The others, there are others who never want to look at the Bible. Their question is always, well, what's your resume of causes and movements with which you are involved? All they want to know is, well, what are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? What are you doing about it? I don't know why I'm doing it, but what are you doing about it? Oh, I know why I'm doing it. I want to paste it on social, uh, post it on social media. But what, what, why? Okay. Never asking why. And the problem is we need both. We need to be nourished. We need to be nurtured. But we also need to be sent. That's why a true body of Christ, a true church, a true community of faith both gathers and then is scattered. We gather and we scatter. And then there's one more group. That's the group who say this, aha, I don't have to come to church. I can worship God anywhere. And yes. Yes. You should worship God anywhere, even on the freeways, which is probably where we have the least amount of God worshiping going on, okay? But we should worship God anywhere. But church is still an essential part of being a follower of Christ for two reasons. Number one, because the Bible clearly says so. It's stunning to me how many people, I'm a a Bible-believing Christian. What church are you involved with? I don't go to church. I don't need to worship God at a church. Well, then you're not a Bible-believing Christian. You need, to, you need to take Bible-believing out of your self-definition. You need to be in a church, in a faith community. But the second reason is because there are things that happen in church and in church community as we scatter that simply cannot be replicated anywhere else. Can't do it anywhere else. Something else. I want you to notice the ethos of unity in what Jesus says. Worshipping in truth and spirit transcends every racial boundary, every economic boundary, every political boundary, every cultural boundary. The kingdom of God is going to shock some of us when we get there. With all the different types of people who are there. And I know, for some of you, it's like, but, but Frank, um, that's really awkward and uncomfortable. And I hate to use that old line of Protestant guilt, but I'm going to do it. So was the cross. The cross was really awkward and uncomfortable, okay? He's not calling us to anything that he hasn't experienced himself. Verses 25 and 26. So the woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. This is unusual for a Samaritan to use the word Messiah. I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ, and when he comes, he will tell us all things. Again, this is, kind of a, this is kind of a, well, it's been nice talking to you. I need to get out of here, and I'll say something as I'm going, okay? And Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. So, so the woman makes one last half-hearted attempt to extricate herself from the situation, but Jesus says, I'm going to close the deal now. And she finally gets it. And the way Jesus claims his divinity in verse 26, it's an allusion to when Moses experienced God in the the burning bush. I am who I am. He's he's letting her know. You know that story of the Exodus. You know when God came to Moses. And and she's like, hmm, that's interesting. So now she gets it. Look at verses 27 through 30. Just then, his disciples came back. Listen to this. They marveled that he was talking with a woman. They marveled negatively. Okay, but, but no one said out loud, uh, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Can this be the Messiah? And they went out uh, of the town and were coming to Jesus. So verse 27, there was a very strict po- protocol for the disciples of a rabbi to never question him about what he's doing in front of other people. If they disagreed with what he's doing, they had to wait until they were alone. They would never question uh, publicly. So they're thinking in their head, what in the wide world of sports is Jesus doing talking to this Samaritan woman who's at the well in the middle of the day who's obviously a problem? So they, never, but they were thinking, they wanted to because he was breaking all kinds of protocol as far as they were concerned. Remember, they're new to Jesus, they're new to his way of being a rabbi, so this was very disorienting to them. But the beauty in the story, which then they see, the beauty of the story comes in verses 28 through 30. She's now so excited that she leaves her water jar by the well, and she potentially makes a fool out of herself by going into town, and, and she becomes essentially a street evangelist she starts telling everybody about Jesus. And she says, this man is possibly the Messiah. And understand, this is revolutionary because the Samaritans rarely spoke in terms of Messiah. They always spoke in terms of a prophet. And there's a big difference. They were kind of just looking for the next Jacob. But they didn't realize there was really going to be a Messiah, a Christ, the one who was going to save everyone from their sins. And so this was phenomenal that she's saying, this could be the Christ. And both men and women listened to her and came. And and they listened to and believed a woman in a context where that would never happen. Do, Do you understand how ridiculous this is? That this woman goes out into this city where everybody can't stand her and thinks she's nothing, and she says, I think I found the Messiah. And they're like, I think we better go check this out. Okay, think about last week. If you were here last week, all those people that experienced the feeding, the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, and then experienced Jesus' clear teaching that he's Messiah. And at the end of it, what did they all do? They grumbled. Remember? They grumbled. said, I don't want any part of this. I'm done with this. Okay. This woman, last person in the Bible that we would expect would get it, she gets it. That's just crazy. That's just wild. And not only does she get it, but she's so... She's so overcome that she goes out and starts to evangelize. And she doesn't care about her reputation. She she doesn't care how this makes her look. And people started coming. And it's a powerful message. She's saying, come and meet the man who told me things about myself that even you don't know. You think I'm bad. Guess what? He really knows how bad. He told me things about myself that I have never shared with anybody else because it would be devastating to do that. And yet, and yet, He treats me with honor and dignity and love and compassion and empathy. He he treats me like somebody that he wants to be with, like somebody who has value, who has worth, somebody who was created in the image of God. He treats me like I'm ready for redemption. The unredeemable is ready for redemption. That's exactly the good news that Jesus has for you and I today. Exactly. So many of us think we're beyond redemption. Jesus says no. So many of us are not sure about this guy Jesus, and Jesus says, I'm just going to keep hounding you. I'm going to keep coming for you. And if you already know Jesus, I would encourage you to come a little bit closer, because guess what? He can handle it. And you can handle it too. And if you don't know Jesus, I really want you to consider the story of this woman, this complete outcast, this person who has absolutely... Nothing in her life that deserves the attention of God, and yet God lavishes her with love and dignity and redemption. Who wouldn't want to be involved in a story like that? Let's pray together. Uh, Lord God, we thank you and praise you for what you have done for us in and by and through your Son, and it's in his name that we pray, it's in his name that we, that we live, it's in his name that we move and breathe God, we're thankful for salvation. We're thankful for your message of salvation. We're thankful for your love. God, it's our prayer right now that we would, we would come a little bit closer. But we want to know you. We want to see you. We want to be with you. Maybe just as much as you want to be with us, which is a marvelous and remarkable thing. God, we thank you for that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.